Guys, um, we, I, I got a, a, a little bit carried away. I, I didn't plan very well last week, and there's, there's one thing in that last portion of the Apostles' Creed that I wanted to mention. Um, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Those two words, our Lord, uh, because I don't know this, it, that any of you have been affected by that discussion that, that was... Um, it was a debate, a kind of rather a hot one, in fact. Uh, uh, the two big um, opponents in the... It was back in the 70s, late 70s and 80s. Uh, the two big opponents was John MacArthur and, and Chuck Swindoll. And they were opposing each other over something called lordship salvation. You may remember it. Uh, that was the debate on lordship salvation. And... Um, um, uh, MacArthur was on one end of the spectrum, uh, Swindoll was on another, uh, Bill Bright weighed in, um, and, and you might remember that the whole, the, the, the issue was, can you have Jesus as savior and not have him as Lord or the, uh, on, on the, on the Bill Bright end of the spectrum, you can have Jesus as savior, but you don't have to get him as Lord until later. That was the whole, and it was popularized through this thing where there were the three circles. Do you remember the three circles? The infamous three circles um, where there were, that, that's a throne. Uh, that's not an H. That's a chair. And um, uh, in, in the first circle, you had the non-Christian where Jesus was on the outside of his life and his life was, you know, just chaotic. Uh, but then you had the Christian, uh, according to this um, position, the Christian who had Jesus in his life, but ego was still on the throne. Oh, and back, ego was on the throne here. Ego is still on the throne, and so you had, uh, I mean, I, I printed one off today. Can I read you some of the characteristics of, of that person? Um, oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, <clears throat> what are they doing back there? The woman that thou gavest to me. <laughs> yeah, there they are. Um, here's some of the characteristics of, of this fellow right here. Um, legalistic attitude, impure thoughts, jealousy, guilt, worry, discouragement, critical spirit, frustration, aimlessness, fear, ignorance of his spiritual heritage, unbelief, disobedience, love, loss of love for God and for others, poor prayer life, no desire for Bible study. But, you know, Jesus is in there. Um, and so, but the, the one that really had all, everything together, it was Christ was in his life, but he was on the throne and ego was in submission to the throne or in submission to Christ, excuse me. And so that was the thing that was the popularizer of the whole position that you could have Jesus as savior. Yeah. Um, but have this chaotic life, uh, but, but he didn't have to be Lord. Well, um, I just wanted to, to address it very briefly because we've got other things to... I heard R.C. Sproul say this. Um, I don't know. It seems like it was within the year. Of course, he died in December, but he, either on a YouTube or something. And he said, during this whole debate, John MacArthur stepped forward and wrote this book, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. And the whole debate went away because of MacArthur's handling of the whole subject in this book called the, and and really folks this is excellent stuff and and very honestly I, this was a, uh, copyrighted in, in 1986 and after 86 the discussion pretty much went away nobody was nobody was talking about this anymore 
I mean, it might be online, but nobody was talking about this anymore because MacArthur did such an incredible job of um, analyzing the whole thing about lordship salvation. Of course, MacArthur was saying, um, MacArthur was saying what the what I think the the New Testament says in Acts chapter two verse thirty six. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I remember somebody saying, I don't know who, how, what you've made Jesus, but God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. So their, their, their point was, if you become a Christian, Jesus is not only your Savior, but also your Lord. And that was, uh, that was the, the debate called the Lordship Salvation thing. You don't get Jesus as Savior without getting him as the Lord of your life. Are there, are there inconsistencies in, in us? Oh, are there ever. Uh, are there uh, low periods? Oh, yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, Jesus Christ is Lord, and we're finding out how to submit to him more and more as time unfolds. In fact, that lordship becomes more and more important to us. It becomes more and more real. It becomes more and more obvious. It becomes more and more dominant. Uh, because once we, got in, uh, once we entered the household of faith, uh, this, uh, the whole, the whole center of my existence changed, uh, as this Jesus, as my savior and my Lord. Okay. I just wanted to address that in, in, uh, because the, the, the apostle creed said, you know, I believe in God, the father almighty maker in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. They seem to be promoting, uh, seem to be uh, very aware of this whole thing that MacArthur is but um, if, you want, if you want to read that through, I mean, I really, again, it's not much of a debate anymore because MacArthur did his job so well. But if you want to read that debate, this is the thing to buy. Um, that's what you want. Now, we move on um, to the, tonight's uh, subject. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate was dead. That's next week. The, where, where we are tonight is he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, and born of the Virgin Mary. Guys, um, that doctrine of the virgin birth uh, has a bullseye on its back. The, the skeptical wor- world absolutely snickers over this whole thing that we uh, say we believe in terms of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't know if you ever ever saw this, because, but I, I saw it someplace and I found it. And Larry King, Larry King on Larry King Live one night was, was asked, um, uh, if you ever were to meet Jesus, uh, would you like to ask him a quote? What question would you ask him? And this is a quote from Larry King. He said, I would like to ask Jesus if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. <laughs> Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, how you answer, was Jesus virgin born, defines history. Um, So there's just this large bullseye on the back of this doctrine because people are taking shots at it from all camps, from all over. For instance, there's the argument against the virgin birth from science. Science looks at us and says... Oh, you gullible Christians, don't you understand that that's a biological impossibility? Um, that it would involve spontaneous, uh, or spontaneous generation, and that just can't happen. Now, okay, uh, if, folks, that position is very consistent with a certain presupposition. You know what a presupposition is? 
A presupposition is something that I presuppose before I ever enter, enter any argument. Okay? And a non-Christian uh, who is, is entering the argument with this presupposition. There is no God. And so because he has that presupposition, he says, don't you know that that's a biological impossibility? I mean, that would call for a spontaneous generation. And that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because of his whole presuppositional position. Okay? But that's one of the ways that it's attacked. The other, another way that it's attacked <coughs> is to suggest, or one, uh, something that's more modern in, in its attack on the virgin birth, is to, is to deny that it ever happened because the New Testament uh, doesn't really even teach it. Um, Paul never mentions it. Uh, it's not found in the Gospel of Mark, say they. Now, it, it is found, of course, uh, somewhat at length in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of uh, Luke, uh, mentioned in the Gospel of John, but I don't know how many times you have to say it for it to be true. But uh, the argument is, because uh, Paul doesn't mention it, and because uh, it's not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, that it, 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 it's not even in the, the, uh, the New Testament. We'll come back to that. Um, then there's the argument that's aimed that, it is, that the virgin birth is barred from Greek mythology. Because there, is, there, are, there are scenes where, where um, uh, there are certain generations that come from the, um, the generations of Minerva that come out of the brain of Jupiter. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe that's really comforted you in your, on your sickbed. <laughs> but but the, the suggestion is that that's somewhat, somehow similar to this thing called the virgin birth. All I'm saying is, guys, um, just like Larry King says, what I want to know is, was he born of a virgin? Because that's going to change history. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So what I want to do the rest of my time with you is show you the argument that comes out of the scriptures, okay? Um, now, guys, the real controversy is not found in the New Testament. It's found in the Old. Um, it's, the, the controversy is found in Isaiah 7. Um, and it's called the Alma Betula. I think there's two L's, but I'm not sure. Uh, the Alma Betula debate. Guys, you know, um, you know, in, in, um, uh, in Isaiah seven, there is a prediction about a young woman having a baby. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, Isaiah gives it, uh, to the king as a sign. Do you remember that? Uh, that's not Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 is where the, he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God. But this is in Isaiah 7. Um, that Isaiah is sent to Ahaz and, t- and told him to give, to give Ahaz this sign. Um, but the term that is found there, the term that is found in Isaiah chapter 7, is this one, Alma. Which means maiden or young girl. The term betula, or the Hebrew word betula, is more accurate and more precise, meaning, indeed, virgin. And so the, the, the argument is because it's, um, this is the term that you find in the Hebrew text, that Isaiah 7 does not, even, does not even speak of a virgin giving birth. I would suggest to you on three bases that that's a, that's a pretty weak argument, because, folks... Uh, how unusual would it be for a maiden to have a baby? How could that be any kind of sign 
to Ahaz the king. There's nothing unusual, nothing noteworthy about a maiden, a young woman, having a, um, a baby. But if he intended, if Isaiah intended that it was a virgin that was going to have a baby, it could be indeed found in that word. But it's not as technical as is this word. Okay? Now here's the second piece of, my second basis. Remember, I told you about this document a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago. Remember what that is? That's the Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint, when it got ready to translate Isaiah 7 um, into Greek, used the Greek word um, parthenos, which is indeed a word for virgin. Uh, 200 years before the, work of, uh, before the birth of Christ, when these 70 scholars got together to understand what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah chapter 7, they used this Greek word to translate that one, which is a very clear term about, uh, about um, virginity. Um, now, the, the third basis for my argument is that Matthew 1, we're going to look at it in just a second, Matthew 1 quotes this. Matthew 1 quotes Isaiah 7. Let's go look at it. Um, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Oh, I guess beginning at verse, uh, the whole thing begins about verse, I don't know, 18, but it's not, uh, doesn't really get going until, uh, the, the quote is found in verse 23. In Matthew 1, 23. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You see, he's quoting Isaiah 7 in Matthew 1. Got it? Um, All right. Now, guys, um, look at the whole argument. Um, Beginning at verse, um, uh, the birth of Jesus took place in this way, verse verse 8. When his mother um, came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being unwilling to put her to shame, Resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, guys, what's going on in, in Joseph's mind? Oh, I've been, I've been uh, engaged to this chick, and uh, she's gone out and been promiscuous and gotten herself pregnant. And he's going to, because he's a righteous man, he doesn't want to embarrass her, he's going to put her away quietly. But he has to be reinformed as to exactly what happened. And notice in verse 19. I mean, a 20. But as he considered these things, that is how I'm going to put my promiscuous girlfriend or an engaged girlfriend away, and uh, you know, but not, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't uh, fear to take her as a wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, God shows up and, and adjusts Joseph's thinking. Because Joseph thought, oh, she's pregnant because of promiscuity. And the, and the angel corrects his thinking. Um, he has to show up and say, yes, yeah, she's pregnant, all right. But the pregnancy is not one that is normal. It's one that um, is from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> um, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as an angel commanded, and he took his wife, look at verse 25, but knew her not 
until she had given birth to a son. So the whole idea is very clearly in the background of this, this unfolding story about the birth of Jesus. That what Mary is bearing, she's bearing something that was not produced in some kind of normal um, biological way. This, this child within her womb is of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now go to the Luke account, Luke chapter 1. And again, um, everything about the account shouts virginity. Um, uh, Luke 1, verses 34 and 35. Oh, <clears throat> okay, um, and Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Okay? Um, and the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child who will be born will be holy, the Son of God, etc., etc." Now, drop down to verse 37. For nothing will be impossible to God. Gang, the whole idea of impossibility <clears throat> is because, not that she was barren, but that she had never known a man. Again, the, the, the whole idea, the whole background here, um, the impossibility thing is raised precisely because Mary was, what, what she was told violated the, the canons of all probability. So how did that happen? The Holy Spirit intervened in such a way that all of those impossibilities were set aside. Now, gang, it's one thing to say, I don't believe in the virgin birth. You can do that if you like. But it's an entirely different thing to say that the Bible doesn't teach it. Because the Bible does. And I hope you've seen that argument. It, it, at least somewhat. Let me give you a little bit more of it, guys. Um, folks, the, um, the whole Christian faith stands or falls on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Um, it's not so much, it, it doesn't so much depend on what he taught, although that's important. The whole viability of the Christian message stands or falls on his person, who he is, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Not only that, um, the atonement which resulted in the payment for sin for undeserving people like us, the efficacy of the atonement depends on the offering being made for sin be a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish. And if Jesus Christ was born through natural procreation, he is not a lamb without blemish. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he was a child... Uh, uh, under wrath, because he's inherited an Adamic nature um, through the whole pre being identified with humanity in a, in a normal way. Folks, um, Christ does not inherit the nature of Adam via the whole virgin birth. What I'm saying to you is, gang, the doctrine of the virgin birth is an absolute essentiality. Were it not true, 
you do not have a savior. Because he wasn't without blemish, he was blemished. He was a, um, a child born under wrath. So, uh, what I tried to show you is to just tell you some of the arguments that are leveled at it, and then show you that the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke very clearly are setting before you the issue of a birth performed by a virgin. Now, let me uh, say a couple other quick things and I'll be done. Um, guys, in Protestantism, um, us folks, us Protestants, um, we have some real uh, ambivalence, I think, about Mary. And uh, some of it's legitimate. Um, other parts of it are not legitimate. Our, our great reservation about the Virgin Mary has been foisted upon us by the Roman Catholic Church because they've deified her. Uh, we've gone over this before. It's in the archives if you want to hear it. But, gang, the Christian church has always called Mary the Theotokos. Um, it's a term that means the mother of God. Remember when she's in, in the Gospel of Luke, it's, uh, the angel greets her as the highly favored one? Well, she is the highly favored one. She's the Theotokos. She's the mother of God, and we'll never deny that as a Protestant. What we do deny is things like immaculate conception. Um, you know, I've said this to you before. I'm sorry to bore you, but the immaculate conception, when I say immaculate conception, what you think is virgin birth. And the Immaculate Conception taught by the Roman Church has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. Immaculate Conception in the Roman Catholic Church has to do with the birth of Mary. That she was immaculately conceived. Thus, she too avoided uh, an Adamic nature. Immaculate Conception says that in essence, Mary is not a sinner. And yet, in her great song... The Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 or 7, she says, My soul doth magnify the, my soul doth magnify the, um, uh, I better read it. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's singing. And what is she singing? She's saying, this God is my Savior. What does she need a Savior for if she's immaculately conceived? No, ladies and gentlemen, she is a woman highly favored indeed. But she needs a Savior. And by the way, before the end of the, the birth narrative in Luke chapter 1 and 2, guess what Mary and Joseph do in the latter half of uh, Luke 2? They go to the temple and they offer a sin offering... Well, why did they do that? Because they recognized, they knew that they were sinners. The Roman Catholic Church is the one that's confused us so and told us that she has some kind of saving grace that she can distribute. She cannot. She's just in much need of saving grace as you and I. But that is not to remove her from the position of her highly favored one. She is the Theotokos. Now, the other thing that I want to mention before I quit about Mary, because that's, I mean, her name is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. 
Guys, um, there is a Roman Catholic, the, the, the Roman Catholic position on Mary is just so, it, it's just, it, it is so far from, here's part of it. You can go find it on the line, just, online just as well as I did. Did you know that Mary was a perpetually a virgin? She never had sex with Joseph at all. Not before his conception, not after his birth, no time. She was perpetually a virgin. That's their position. Guys, go back to the Matthew account. Um, um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. Um, He took her, his wife, he, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Would you would you would you explain that? And what does that mean? Um, she didn't. Joseph did not. They had no relations during her pregnancy. But after that pregnancy, it was a. You know, guys. Here's the real problem for Rome. Um, Rome believes that married sex is somehow dirty and shameful. And so she couldn't possibly have had sex with her husband, and thus we get this. In John chapter 7, you remember I preached it about six weeks ago. In verse 3, John 7, 3, it talks about his brothers did not believe in him. Well, they had some more babies. And, And maybe some sisters. But Rome can't acknowledge that because of their view, this this god-awful view, and where it came from, I know not, that somehow sex in marriage is dirty. Now, (laughs) may I be the first to inform you that I'm very happy that it is not. Somehow dirty and shameful. But if you hold on to this nonsense, um, it's because you have been led there by a church that writes her own truth, um, but by a church that believes that it is, it is holier to remain male and female virgin, and thus priests sign this document that they will never, they'll be celibate. Well, tell me, how's that working for them? (laughs) That was never intended to be. Never! And yet we've got this incredible mess because Rome thought up this thing because I think of their views of marital sex. All I know, ladies and gentlemen, is um, Mary was highly favored. She bore the Son of God, um, recognizing that she herself needed a Savior, and upon the offering of the sin offering in Luke chapter 2, went on to have a very healthy marital sex life with her husband, Joseph. Something not to be considered shameful, something to be celebrated.
Our Father, I, I pray that you will uh, assure your people, not of what I taught, but assure them of the uniqueness of our Savior. That our, our, our soul's destiny is banking on, a, on, on one who is unique from the very beginning. That from the moment there was fertilization in the womb of Mary, it was something that was governed and um, accomplished by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Would you give us a real love of that truth, knowing that without it, this Jesus of Nazareth would be a sinner? But he's not. He is the Lamb without blemish. He goes to the cross, pays for our sins, purchases a place in heaven for us, and then offers us that spot in heaven as a free gift. And so many people in this room have received the gift that he offered them. Lord, if you brought people here tonight who have not yet received the gift of eternal life, would you cause them to see that Jesus Christ is their only hope? Do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Hope to see you tomorrow night. <clears throat>